On Tuesday, March 31st, 2009, a woman called the Sheriff's Department. She told the police a story that was almost unbelievable. Someone had been murdered five weeks earlier and no one had even noticed. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to the first day of our 12 Days of Crime Lines. I have chosen a bunch of cases on my suggestion list that are too short for a full Crime Lines episode or have something in them I want to discuss, but they're all cases I feel need more attention or have something we can learn from them. So that means starting today and ending on the 20th, we are going to do 12 daily episodes. This case was suggested to me by Stacy, so I want to thank you so much for sending it in. Stacy also suggested I reach out to a YouTuber who goes by the name Hatman, who had some good sources for me, and I appreciate his help. I will leave his channel linked in the show notes. He's a commentary channel. He is not true crime, but it is there if you are interested. Okay, so let's get started. In 2009, 35-year-old Kenneth McBride lived with his fiancée, 46-year-old Roberta Laws. The two had been together for about a decade and lived in Kenneth's home in Middleburg, Florida. This is about half an hour outside of Jacksonville. Roberta didn't have close family in the area, and neighbors said Kenneth and Roberta mostly kept to themselves. But Roberta did have some friends she was very close to who were almost like family. She was known for encouraging people and just being an all-around support system for them when they were working through something, just a really caring and giving person. Roberta had cerebral palsy, which is a motor disability, and she did use a wheelchair. She moved through life pretty independently. She was not heavily dependent on Kenneth. But one day, a young woman came to the door, and Kenneth said she was there to interview for a caretaking position for Roberta. This was 24-year-old Mary Barone. But Mary was not actually answering an employment ad, like Kenneth said. Mary was actually Kenneth's other girlfriend. Now, Mary did go on to write a memoir about this, so we do know the story from her recollections. I'll leave a link to the book in the show notes. I had to take the version in the police documents and the version in the memoir together to get an idea of what happened. Mary said when she initially met Kenneth, she was in a vulnerable state. She was coming out of her first marriage. Kenneth gave her the impression that he was wealthy and could take care of her, and he would get hotel rooms for them to spend the night together. In reality, Kenneth worked at a car wash. Mary did not suspect that Kenneth was in a relationship, let alone engaged to someone for a decade, until he suddenly broke up with her. She didn't know what happened or why he didn't want to see her anymore, so she drove out to his house to look for closure, answers, something. Mary said when the door opened, Roberta was there. Mary was initially taken aback and was trying to size up the situation when Kenneth quickly jumped in with this story about Mary being there, answering an ad for a caretaker. Mary said she just went along with it, which is a mindset I personally don't understand because I have no poker face. I can keep my mouth shut pretty well, but my face 
gives me away every time. But Mary said she decided to just go along with it and then leave as soon as she could now that she knew she was the other woman in this situation. She said she had no intention of ever going back to that house. But then the next day, Roberta called her. She actually really liked Mary when she met her and thought she would be a good fit for that position. And Mary decided to go ahead and take the job. Again, this is so outside of how I think that I do cock my head to the side as I'm reading this, but I think Mary's mindset and life circumstances at the time have a little to do with how things went moving forward. She was 24, she was living with her grandmother, struggling to get back on her feet after separating from her husband. This was a live-in position, so she would have a job and a place to live that wasn't with family. And I'm sure being smitten with Kenneth McBride probably factored into it somewhere as well. And it can be argued that Mary was actually qualified for this job. She had a younger brother who had cerebral palsy, and his disabilities were more severe than Roberta's. Roberta, like I said, was pretty independent, and she hadn't used a full-time caregiver up to that point. So this position was supposed to be as much companionship, keeping Roberta company, as it was actually helping her with things. The help part would be relatively light. According to Mary, a continued relationship with Kenneth was not supposed to be part of the deal, but eventually they did rekindle their romance. As far as I can tell, Kenneth has not publicly discussed any of this. On the surface, I can see why people are suspect that this was a setup from the start that Mary knew about Roberta, and they realized the only way they could live together was to have Mary move in as a quote-unquote caregiver. But Kenneth has not said anything to contradict Mary's version of events or to back it up, so this is what we have to go by. Regardless of how it started, Mary and Kenneth did continue their relationship after she moved in, but Mary did not want to be the other woman forever and she started pushing Kenneth to break things off with Roberta. Mary's words from an email were, get rid of Roberta. Mary said she meant moving Roberta out, possibly to an assisted living facility. On February 23rd, 2009, it was Mary's birthday. Mary, Kenneth, and Mary's grandmother all went out to dinner to celebrate. Mary and Kenneth had been fighting that day about Roberta still living in the house. At one point during this argument, Kenneth retorted he would just kill Roberta. Mary did not take that statement seriously, and she eventually told Kenneth their relationship was over. When he drove her grandmother home after the dinner, Mary told him to just leave her there. She was not going to go home with him. And according to Mary, Kenneth threatened to hurt her grandmother if she didn't get back into the truck. Trying to appease him, she did what he said. Kenneth then drove them back to his house and he told Mary to wait in the truck. He went inside and was in there for anywhere from 20 to 60 minutes, depending on the source. Then he came back out to the truck and told Mary to come inside. When Mary went into the house, she found Roberta in the bedroom, tied to the bed, and gagged. There was a rope around Roberta's neck, and Mary could tell she was already dead. 
Kenneth told Mary he had strangled her. He had, in fact, gotten rid of Roberta. Kenneth then ordered Mary to get two big black trash bags from the kitchen. He cut them open and duct taped them together into what has been described as a makeshift body bag. Kenneth cut the ropes off of Roberta's body and threw them away. He then rolled the body into the bags and wrapped them with duct tape he had gotten out of his truck. Then Kenneth and Mary drove to Walmart where they can be seen on CCTV footage buying a shovel. Mary said they then went back to the house where Kenneth dug a hole in the backyard while she cleaned the house. The next day, the 24th, Kenneth brought the body out of the house and put it on the back porch. He then piled bags of actual trash around it so it wouldn't look suspicious to anyone who happened to see it. Then, after dark, around 9 p.m., he dragged Roberta's body to the hole he had dug and buried her, covering the hole with boards. The day after that, Kenneth packed up all of Roberta's things, which included her wheelchair and her toilet chair, and donated it all to the Salvation Army. Within two days of Mary saying it was either her or Roberta, Kenneth had managed to make it look like Roberta never existed. As for Mary, she said at this point she was staying in Kenneth's house under the threat of death. Not just her life was threatened, but also her grandmother's. She said initially Kenneth would tie or handcuff her wrist to the bed so she couldn't leave. Then he started letting her move around the house while he was home and would only restrain her when he had to leave. Mary wrote in her memoir that the more she complied and seemed to go along with things, the more freedom she was given. Eventually, weeks into this, Kenneth began trusting that Mary wouldn't leave. One night on March 30th, 2009, Kenneth fell asleep in the bed while Mary was still out on the couch. After she was sure Kenneth was asleep in the very early morning hours of the 31st, Mary snuck out of a window and walked to a local convenience store. She asked for a ride to a friend's house where she then called the police and told them this entire twisted story. It had been five weeks since Roberta Laws was murdered. After hearing this, the police wanted to gather evidence, but all of the evidence was on Kenneth's property. That would require a warrant, and at this point, they just had the statement of a woman who admitted she helped clean up the crime. Under duress, yes, but still, they wanted more to take to a judge for a search warrant, I'm sure. The police had Mary call Kenneth and try to get him to admit what he did while they listened in. And Kenneth, not quite as smart as other suspects we have talked about on the show, did not sense the trap Mary was laying out for him. He admitted enough over the phone that the authorities had what they needed for not just a search warrant, but also an arrest warrant for Kenneth McBride. Kenneth was then pulled over as he was driving around town, possibly looking for Mary, and then he was arrested. They knew exactly where he was when the warrant came through because they had been surveilling him all day. 
After his arrest, Kenneth was asked if he was willing to make a statement, and he did. He straight up confessed. He said he went up behind Roberta with a rope. He said he was sorry, and then he strangled her. His words were, he choked her like a dog. The idiom choking like a dog actually means buckling under pressure, but Kenneth used it to describe the cold-blooded murder of a woman he claimed to love, who he supposedly wanted to marry, and who very much loved and trusted him. Meanwhile, the search warrant on Kenneth's property was carried out, and just like Mary said, Roberta was found buried at the base of the porch. They even found the box of trash bags and the roll of duct tape used right in the places Mary told them they would find them. Everything Mary said in her statement that could be proven was proven at the scene. According to the Clay County Sheriff, Roberta's body was well-concealed. Even someone in the backyard may not have seen where she was buried because he had put boards and other yard items over the grave. Kenneth McBride was then charged with Roberta's murder, and the state announced they were seeking the death penalty. And you may be wondering about any charges pertaining to the five weeks he allegedly kept Mary captive in his house, first by restraints and then by threats. Well, I'm using the word allegedly, so you can guess already that Kenneth was never charged for this. As for why not, I can't answer that. No one has come out publicly and said anything. I can speculate based on what we've seen in other cases. Now, in this case, there was only Mary's word that this happened. And while that doesn't necessarily mean they couldn't charge him, I do think the Walmart security tape undermined Mary's story too much. There was this video of Mary with Kenneth on the night of the murder where they were buying a shovel at Walmart. She didn't alert anyone as to what happened, and while body language is nearly impossible to judge with those terrific security camera angles, there really were no obvious issues with how she interacted with Kenneth that would set off any alarm bells. Now, of course, we know trauma can make people act in ways they wouldn't normally act. It can send people into a daze, and that's very well what could have happened here. However, what would this video look like to a jury? In the end, those were the people who needed to be convinced. Not charging Kenneth for the alleged crimes against Mary doesn't necessarily mean that they did not believe her, because they also didn't charge Mary as an accessory after the fact. Technically, that is what she did in her self-described actions. But if they had reason to believe she acted under duress, and a good chance a jury would believe that as well, there were no grounds to charge her. In addition to all of this, they did want her testimony against Kenneth. That's not to say she cut a deal. There were no indications her testimony was directly in exchange for consideration of any kind. Mary told her story from the start before there was any discussion of any promises or any pressure to testify for a better deal. That doesn't mean Kenneth's defense attorney didn't make serious attempts to undermine Mary's testimony, even before trial began. 
For one thing, he wanted Mary's computer hard drive. He believed there may have been some exculpatory evidence on it. Now, Kenneth confessed. So what could be on Mary's hard drive that said he didn't do it? Nothing, right? But exculpatory doesn't just mean that the evidence proves innocence. It can also be used to justify or excuse actions. In other words, he wasn't going to say Kenneth didn't do it, but he was going to try to mitigate Kenneth's guilt by pointing at Mary's possible involvement. There was an issue with the computer, though. When a state investigator tried to remove the hard drive, the computer actually caught on fire. Now, I did not know this could happen. It guarantees I'm never going to touch the insides of my own computer, but the damage was documented, and it was extensive enough that the state had to compensate Mary for the loss of the computer. The defense was told the hard drive was a loss, but they wanted it so they could have another expert look at it to see if anything could be recovered. Now, another thing they wanted pre-trial was for Mary to undergo a psychological examination. Mary had already said in interviews that she had schizoaffective disorder and PTSD. For those who don't know, schizoaffective disorder presents primarily with symptoms of schizophrenia, but alongside the symptoms of a mood disorder. It can include delusions, hallucinations, as well as depression and mania. Mary said she did have hallucinations, like seeing her father on the street or next to her bed, even though he had died years before. It isn't necessarily that Mary's mental health conditions made her more likely to lie, but that they made her more likely to have memories or perceptions of what happened that weren't entirely accurate or were even completely false. Now, at the risk of repeating myself, Kenneth confessed, and the evidence at the house was found where Mary said it would be. So we know she didn't hallucinate or misremember the entire thing. In fact, her memories, like exactly where the garbage bags were, were remarkably clear. But this was a death penalty case. It's not entirely about guilt versus innocence. It's life or death, and his attorney wanted the best chance at getting Kenneth a life sentence instead of death row. If he could bring into question the worst parts of Mary's story or make the jury think she had more of a role than the state said she did, Kenneth did have a better chance at mercy. So the attorney wanted to do this by showing things like emails from Mary, like the one telling Kenneth to get rid of Roberta. Maybe there was more on that hard drive. The state argued at the February 2011 trial that Mary's emails to Kenneth to get rid of Roberta were irrelevant except to show that there was premeditation on Kenneth's part. It's not like he snapped one night. He knew he had to choose between Mary and Roberta, and though Kenneth had other options like putting Roberta in a nursing home, he chose to kill her. The medical examiner testified that Roberta was likely conscious for a few minutes during the attack, though Kenneth said this wasn't true. He said he strangled her to death within three minutes, which we know isn't true because that's not how it works. And I doubt he used a stopwatch. Minimizing what he did for how long he did it, that's not uncommon with killers. We expect it. But it drove home to the jury 
that Roberta's last moments weren't brief. She wasn't killed in her sleep. She knew what was happening, and that adds to the horror and the tragedy of her death. So after all of the testimony, the jury was given their instructions, and they were sent to deliberate. And then Kenneth McBride did something I have never seen before. I have seen trials partway through get interrupted because the defendant wants to change his plea. We've seen that. I've never seen someone wait until the trial was all but over. The jury was sent to deliberate and then say, I actually want to change my plea. Kenneth McBride wanted to plead guilty, and this halted the jury deliberations just a few minutes after they started. We know that when people know they're guilty, they're going to be found guilty anyway. They'll plead guilty in the hopes the jury will see it as remorse or taking accountability or at least sparing the victim's loved ones the pain of a trial. They would see that and they would take that into consideration when they made their sentencing recommendation. But pleading guilty this far into trial, at the tail end of it, when the jury probably would have been back in an hour with a verdict, I don't think that sent that message to the jury at all. I don't think it helped Kenneth's case. It certainly didn't make it look like he was owning up to what he did. Regardless, a guilty plea, a guilty verdict, legally it's all the same, so they then moved to the sentencing phase. The prosecution was ready to present the aggravating factors, the things that made this crime more heinous and deserving of the death penalty. And one of the first things they brought up was Roberta's disability. She didn't have a chance to fight him off. She didn't have a chance at escaping him, and Kenneth exploited that when he killed her. The prosecutor also brought up Kenneth's previous criminal record. In 1996, Kenneth was convicted on a felony charge of attempted sexual battery of a child younger than 12. The child was actually eight, and Kenneth spent a whopping year in jail for this. The state asked the jury to consider how Kenneth used his second chance in society. He used it to kill someone. Several friends of Roberta's spoke about what a kind person she was. One in particular was a young woman named Nellie. She had to identify Roberta's remains, which is always a terrible thing for someone to have to do. Nellie looked to Roberta as a maternal figure in her life who made her feel loved, especially after she became a teen mother. Roberta did whatever she could to help Nellie with the baby so that she could stay in school and raise her child. I think Nellie's relationship with Roberta and her statement really helped the jury see Roberta Laws as a whole person and not just Kenneth's unwitting victim. As for the defense, even in the sentencing phase, they pointed to Mary. While saying it wasn't an excuse, Kenneth's attorney said that if Kenneth was a loaded gun, Mary pulled the trigger. Though she was never charged, he did call Mary an accessory to the murder. The issue here, though, is did Mary know Kenneth was a loaded gun 
when she told him to get rid of Roberta. Obviously, that is very heavy language for Mary to use, and it was dangerous language to use if she knew Kenneth was capable of homicide. But they never found any proof that Mary anticipated that. Nothing found showed that was the intended consequence of her words. So yes, Kenneth may have been a loaded gun, maybe Mary pulled the trigger, but did she know that's what she was doing? Now it's up to everyone to evaluate cases like this and decide what they believe. But when we're talking a court of law, we need evidence. And that is part of why the defense wanted that hard drive so bad, because there may be evidence of Mary's intent. But without it, it just wasn't enough. The defense did put on some character witnesses for Kenneth. They all described him as a pretty average person who lived a pretty average and somewhat quiet life. His attorney said that life in prison for Kenneth, living with what he had done, would be a terrible life for him, especially if and when the other inmates learned that he had been convicted of an attempted sex offense against a child. Kenneth was not going to do well in the system, so life in prison would be a terrible punishment. The defense is trying to tell the jury sparing him the death penalty isn't a huge mercy, and hopefully that thought would make it more palatable for the jury to spare his life. The jury deliberated for under 15 minutes, and they recommended the death penalty in a split vote of 8 to 4. In Florida, at that time, the jury only had the power to give a non-binding sentencing recommendation. It was ultimately up to the judge. If they recommended death, the judge could use a judicial override to give life, and if they recommended life, the judge could still give a death sentence. The rule has since changed more than once. In 2016, Florida got rid of the judicial override, and then in 2017, they began requiring a unanimous jury decision for the death penalty to be handed down. With Kenneth McBride, it was not a unanimous verdict, so if the judge gave him the death penalty based on that jury recommendation, Kenneth would likely have since filed an appeal to request a new sentencing hearing. But the judge didn't give him the death penalty. After thanking the jury for their service and having them leave the courtroom, Judge John Skinner shocked everyone and announced that he was sentencing Kenneth to life without parole. Judges rarely used this judicial override in sentencing, even when it was available to them. Yet here we are, and he's using it. All he said as to why he made this decision was that he believed prison was the right place for Kenneth to go and die. He indicated he saw some remorse in Kenneth, which was something other observers apparently did not notice. The prosecutor did file an eight-page objection to this. This isn't an appeal. It's not even a challenge that would change anything. It was just getting the objection on the record. People accused the judge of being an activist from the bench, though he didn't have a history of being ardently anti-death penalty, and without more explanation, it's not entirely clear why he made his decision, other than this vague statement about seeing a glimmer of remorse in Kenneth. 
the court responded to the objection that was filed by the prosecutor by acknowledging that it was received, and that's about it. It's really interesting to see the outrage over the judge's decision in 2011 when just a few years later, the rule changed and what he did would have actually been the required legal outcome. One day, I really do want to hear two lawyers or judges debate the nuance between judicial activism, which Judge Skinner was accused of, and judicial discretion, which is literally the reason we have judges. But this is not the time or place for that. Kenneth McBride is now 48 years old and housed at the Everglades Correctional Institution, which is in Miami, and he will be there and deserves to be there for the rest of his life. As for Mary, she has frankly not had an easy life since Roberta's death. She moved back in with her grandmother and became estranged from her family after her grandmother's death. She later moved out of state. If you want to read more of the story from her point of view, including her life before and after, I will link you to where you can buy her short memoir in the show notes. (laughs) 